Andrew, I just want to welcome you. You have a, a master's of business arts. You're a husband, a father, a retired Special Forces Green Beret, a Warrior Angels Foundation co-founder, and the best-selling co-author of Tales from the Blast Factory, a brain, a brain-injured Special Forces Green Beret's journal, Back from the Brink. Now, this book has been turned into an award-winning full-feature documentary titled Quiet, Quiet Explosions, Healing the Brain by Emmy and Academy Award winners. Andrew lives with his wife, Becky, the love of his life, and their seven children in the Houston area. I'm super stoked to have you on here for today's special interview. And Andy, I just want you to share your story with our listeners, you know, just professionally and, you know, non-professionally, if you can. Yeah, well, it's an absolute honor of mine to be on the show, David. And, you know, you just want to jump uh, right into it, give it some context and go from there. Does that sound good? Yeah, absolutely, brother. Go ahead and share your story. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I guess, you know, uh, my, my story, uh, well, I guess we can start where um, I grew up in Texas. Uh, football was king uh, and still is king, to, I would think, although I, I don't really follow it that much anymore. But so only that my entire life revolved around being an athlete. Uh, by, uh, by 10 years old was the first time I ever played uh, organized, you know, football and pads and it was just like something was awakened in me and uh, it became apparent like that was the, the, the driving factor and motivator in my life so pursued football was able to play it you know through high school at a high level at um, and in Texas we were two-time state champions I was highly recruited uh, went on to be a, a scholarship collegiate athlete started all four years um, offensive line uh, was uh, did very well academically and got to the end of that and realized that um, there wasn't going to be necessarily there wasn't going to be a professional career in the NFL there had the opportunity to play some arena football but it just wasn't appealing to me I had a bunch of friends <clears throat> who were playing kind of in that arena and I was like man like we're just continuing to thrash our bodies but for not the benefit of any you know good pay um, so like at that point it just became less appealing to me but um you know, I was kind of left with a little bit of this void, like, what am I supposed to do with my life now? Because I never thought, but beyond that, like, you know, I will just pursue this, you know, till forever. And there was never any thinking that's the young man's game. And, uh, you know, 9-11 kicks off in 2001. That's right around the time I'm in college. And I felt very compelled by what was going on, simply for the fact that there was, there was guys my own age as I knew it, were putting their lives on the line for the benefit of the country. You know, that's mm -hmm. how I saw it. And at the same time, though, I was pursuing what I wanted to be, be pursuing, but it was always sometimes in the forefront, sometimes in the back, but it, it was always there. And so it became at that point a, a very easy transition when my college career ended to say, okay, well, the next logical progression for me is to jump in the military. And, you know, I know I wanted to be in a special operations unit. So I, I did my best to educate myself on, you know, the different ones. And I thought like, hey, Army Special Forces Green Beret mm -hmm. sounds like something that would be good for my person personality type. You know, by this time I had a college degree, I had a little bit of life experience, you know, um, was athletic, could think uh, critically and, and independently. And, that seemed to line up well as I understood the mission of uh, Green Beret Special Forces. Guys a little bit more mature, you're gonna be out dealing in austere environments, essentially 
force multiplying foreign, you know, uh, units, foreign military units to work by, with, and through, usually to overtake um, governments or to put in a regime that we deem is better than the one in place. So, you know, that was kind of that transition year. So, you know, football from 10 all the way through senior in college. I, I graduated college August of 2006. I enlisted in the army in October of 2006. And my parents were like, why on earth would you enlist? You just finished a college degree. My brother um, finished, he did went through a ROTC program and that's where you directly commission as an officer into the uh, military when you're done. So we're like, well, you know, why don't you follow in the footsteps of your brother? But I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to test myself in combat. I wanted to be on the ground where the shit was happening. And I didn't want to just do 18 months and then go back to, you know, a job uh, at a desk. Yeah. So it was, it was a no brainer for me. So that, that's what kind of segue me into the, uh, the military and, and the kind of special operations uh, pipeline. So I'll, I'll kind of stop there, David, and, and see, um, any questions or where you want to go next? Yeah, well, the reason why I brought you on here, Andy, is because I saw an episode that you did with uh, with Joe Rogan, okay? And he was talking about mm -hmm. TBI and post-traumatic stress disorder. Can you go ahead and elaborate on PTSD and TBI and kind of what's the difference between them? Yeah, I, th I think to give some more context to that, so... Mm -hmm. <clears throat> My job in special forces, one of, one of my responsibilities was an explosive breacher. So I was um, in very close proximity to a number of explosive blast waves, both, you know, ones that I initiated and a lot that I did not uh, initiate. And the, the fallout from that, basically 10 years of doing that and without a scratch on my body, without missing a limb or an eye, I started to become plagued with all these new uh, physical and psychological issues that had never been, I had never had any problems with, any experience with in my entire life up and up until that point. Mm -hmm. And so that, that for me as a, as an individual was very bizarre. I, I was only knocked out, uh, in, in my entire career once, and it was brief and it was during my last combat rotation, which was in 2013. So again, we're talking like three to five seconds and that's it for my entire life. And it didn't even, I didn't even put two and two together. I was like, just, you know, go back and, and do business. And we kept operating, no big deal. But being on those receiving end of just hundreds to thousands of low level blasts over a course of career, we now, we now know was pretty uh, detrimental to the brain because it, it adds up this cumulative effect over time, these subconcussive blasts that really degrade the uh, continuity of the brain. And how that manifests is all these different downstream issues. Like for me, it was um, headaches that went into migraine headaches that went into blurry vision that went into double vision that went into constant balance issues and then started to have um, you know psychological issues being plagued by anxiety and panic attacks and depression and bouts of just uncontrollable rage bouts of crying without having any um, any reason to be in that emotional state and having no control over what triggered that or to stop it once it came on, I was kind of a prisoner in my own body, you know, watching this thing play out. And then on top of that, I started to lose my, um, uh, I would say my neurological functioning, like my ability to um, 
to make executive decisions, to make good decisions, to recall words, working short-term memory, things like that completed, started to completely evaporate. All this happened in a very short time period. Mm -hmm. So going back to me and the question that you asked about what is TBI, what is post-traumatic stress, and maybe what is the difference? And there's also like, there's overarching spheres of influence where they're overlapping in the symptomatology. A traumatic brain injury, when you get down to it, is all uh, alteration of brain functioning Mm-hmm. and brain chemistry. And that can mean a lot of different things. That's like, uh, I forgot where I'm at. You don't have to be knocked out for this to happen. So um, but seeing stars or light or being dizzy, a period of uh, not remembering what happened slightly before it or slightly right after it. And it does not have to be this well thought out thing like, oh, somebody's in a coma, they're knocked out, they have a, you know an open head wound things of that nature, because mm-hmm. that never, I never was, uh, had any of those, you know, in my, uh, experience now, post-traumatic stress, uh, I, I, the department of defense's definition, uh, in essence is an individual who either experiences or witnesses a traumatic event. Mm-hmm. And then that is replayed, um, kind of on an auto loop mentally kind of keeping their body in that fight or flight state and it's accompanying by a whole nother list of um, symptoms and symptomatology that's really degrading to the individual and the theory is is that one is physiological one is physical and one the other one is just psychological meaning there's uh, psychological duress or distress Mm -hmm. that results in uh, the human not being able to cope with that and, and having to go through all different kinds of coping mechanisms with this in this new induced um, state of anxiety, so to speak. So, you know, that's kind of the textbook definitions of, you know, what is a traumatic brain injury? What is a, uh, what is um, the, the terminology or the definition of post-traumatic stress? Mm. Yes, Andrew, going back to that podcast that I heard you on with Joe, okay? I'm going to quote you, okay? You said that in, in that podcast, you said that you're trying to get back to the man you were pre-injury status, okay? What really caught my attention was the mm-hmm. fact that once you had lost your identity as an operator in the, in, you know, in, in the special forces, you know, due to the TBI injury, yeah. that you told yourself, I am still a husband, I am still a father, and that that was the catalyst for change. Can you expand on that ep- epiphany that you had? Yeah, you know, I think we're all, we all get wrapped up, especially us as men, about what it is that we do. Mm. Um, that, that was my entire identity, my entire life. I was an athlete and then I was a special forces operator. Anything secondary to that was much lower. I get secondary is not even the correct term. It was just down here because those were the most important things. And my family and my children were of the utmost importance to me, but in my mindset, which is an accurate way that I had to deal with it, everything that we were doing there was life and death. And that means they took way in the back seat. It yep. wasn't a lack of love. That's just the state. That's just the fact of where it was. If I could go back, I would do it better. But but that's that's the thing. So, man, I had to do a lot of soul searching because you're in this position where basically the army came back. They said, hey, Andrew, you can't take another blow to the head. We don't know what it's going to do to you. Mm-hmm. You can no longer uh, operate, which I couldn't anyway in, in the state that I was in. 
So I, I'm having all these physical problems. I'm having all these psychological problems. My, my life is out of control. I can no longer do and perform. I'm not the man who I was when I came into to the army. And I, and I have no understanding how that even happened. So I'm, I'm having this internal fight, this internal struggle about, you know, well, what am I going to do now? Yeah. Everything's been taken from me. People are treating me wrongly. No one understands me. I'm not going to be able to do what I thought I was supposed to be able to do. And I got in this really negative mind space. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we sometimes we have to have a wake up call to wake up. And, yeah. and mine came that you were quoting there next to my son's bedside after he had this um, uh, life-threatening illness. And he had this serious um, surgery to remove this massive um, uh, mass out of his neck. And that's where I just came to that conclusion that like, hey, man, I might not have that anymore, but that's not me. That's not the who the essence of who I am is. And mm-hmm. you can always take that away. But at the end of the day, the only thing that matters are the people who look up to me and rely on me and who need me to navigate life. And mm-hmm. it became crystal clear at that point, like, okay, I'm not a special forces operator anymore. So be it out of my control. But what is under my control is the man that I want to be. And so mm-hmm. how do I get from who I am today to where I want to be? And I started thinking differently. And then I said, okay, well, if I was the man who I wanted to be, how would I treat my wife? How would I treat my children? And how would I go about doing the things that I want to do? So everything that I, every action I make, every way I communicate is in perfect alignment with who I want to be, which is always guiding them and supporting them to the absolute best of my ability. And so that was that like, you know, profound awakening there at my son's bedside where I realized like, you know what, I got to go all in. Mm -hmm. I'm going all in. I'm going all in on my family. And let's start with that first, that and and getting better, returning to the man in my injury status. And then the third one was, hey, man, if we can do these two things, I'm going to turn around and figure out how we can help people who are on the exact same condition that that I was in and that my family was in because it didn't seem like the answers that and the information that we've put out over the last five years, it didn't really exist in 2014 and mm-hmm. 2015 to the extent it does now, man. So that's the importance of us realizing our roles as men, as husbands, as fathers, first and foremost, mm. and coming that to, back to that foundation and then working out from there. And like I said, man, sometimes we need a wake up call to wake up. And that was certainly, certainly my, my case. Man, that's so awesome that you said that because your story resonates with a lot of men, even men who did serve in the military, you know what I mean? Whether it be a, right. an athlete or a professional boxer or whatever, you know what I mean? I know so many men who are suffering with these underlying issues. You know, um, take, for example, one of our mutual friends, uh, Gene Gladman from uh, Line 1-1, right? Right. Right. He deals with a lot of apprentices and stuff like that through the, the trade over there. And uh, we've been seeing a lot of men just committing suicide over, you know, just issues that you would never think would plague them. You know, a lot of them have to do with their children, you know, not having custody, not being able to see them. But I mean, just guys who are dealing with these issues that are underlying, you know, what I mean, there's a deeper issue there. And it's coming yeah. out in this traumatic stress that they have, you know, and like you said, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder isn't just set to people who have been in war or anything like that, right? It could happen through childhood, you know, and that's one of the reasons why we're 
bringing this awareness on this topic is because I had read an article, okay, Andy? And this article talked about how fathers with PTSD were coming back and they were actually giving PTSD. They're somehow passing it, right? Through negative traits and acts and responses. There are these fathers who are suffering from this untreated PTSD or TBI issues could have negative impacts on their children, okay? It's not that the fathers can somehow pass along their nightmares or flashbacks to their kids, but you know, it, it explains that rather specific PTSD symptoms can alter specific parenting behaviors, which can in turn shape a child's behavior. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I thought that was that was amazing. It was uh, written by Susanna Creech, who's a clinical psychologist and associate professor at the, you know, at the University of Texas, Texas, yeah. Austin, you know what I mean? So, you know, I, I just thought that it was pretty awesome to, to bring you on here and be able to share everything that you went through and your thoughts on all these things and, and linking PTSD with fatherhood, you know? Mm -hmm. So one of the questions I wanted to ask you, Andy, is how has P, uh, you know, TBR or PTSD affected your ability to be an effective father if it has? Yeah, you know, there's there's a couple of points of differentiation here that um, I'm going to bring into my personal story, and then we'll just give some context, kind of with my professional experience with my organization, who helps individuals uh, navigate both of these issues. But what we've we've often found, and this was a complete surprise, um, other meaning like we did we just followed the evidence here. We didn't we didn't go out with this hypothesis. But what never sat right with me, and I was diagnosed with 33 disabilities, like, you know, a ridiculous number of uh, mental disorders. Mm -hmm. And what, what, what never sat right with me was like, well, I, I don't understand because I don't have, I have no issues with anything that I had to do operationally. Like, all I want to do is go back to that life because I felt like that was my calling in life. So I was like, okay, there's no, I, I don't have any problems with what I'm being asked to do. I'm not trying to, you know, get out of duty or go get out of a deployment or anything like that. Far from it. But yet here I am. And, and here's another thing, like special operations is uh, assessed and selected off of very rigid um, uh, and uh, for individuals who are like psychologically and physically resilient to the most extreme and difficult circumstances that, that we know of. Mm -hmm. So again, it was like, how could I deal with all of these things over time and do it well? And then all, now all of a sudden I'm just falling apart. And uh, I had a, a psychologist, I can't remember if a psychologist or psychiatrist, um, but through the Department of Defense, and he was like, well, think of it like this, like you've done a number of operations and you have like in your brain is a filing cabinet and you have this filing system and you are able to go through these operations, compartmentalize, put it in a file cabinet, close the door, continue on with life. Well, that sounded reasonable to me. And he's like, well, what's happened now is because you have so many files that the door can't uh, the, can't close and all these files are spewing out and that is the psychological dis duress and distress that you're under now. And I was just like, it just, that doesn't add up to me. And then I thought like, hey man, like we've been, I was been, I've been around a lot of explosions, low level, sub-concussive, but nonetheless an explosion. Like, could there be any correlation with that affecting my brain in some way into what I'm experiencing and I'm having problems with in, a psycho in these psychological areas. 
And he was like, uh, you know, not, not that I know of, like it was thought and it's currently thought that the symptoms of a head injury, if they last longer than six months, for some reason at that weird point in time, it becomes no longer associated with the physical injury. It now becomes associated with it being a psychological issue. Hmm. So why that's important is that when we were able to properly assess the damage to my brain and to make a specific protocol to kind of go in there and treat those underlying conditions that were never discussed, you know, through all my military uh, travels in the, in the medical domain, well, we were able to then um, not only like come back to where I was before I was my pre-injury status, I actually feel that I'm performing as good, if not better. So the, the point is, is that, was it a, did I have all those psychological, you know, diagnoses or were they symptoms of something else? And in my experience, and I'm just talking about me here is I had the symptoms of anxiety, of depression, of uh, post-traumatic stress and you know, a, a number of other things, but they were really just symptoms of a physical injury because you can follow that back to certain brain chemistry and, and certain parts of the brain that are affected that are responsible for those things. So when those were corrected to me, we would turn off this process called neuroinflammation or chronic neuroinflammation and then make sure my brain was and body was back in the right environment that was conducive to healing regeneration, growth, neuroplasticity, things of that nature. Well, life started to get better and all those psychological issues that I had resolved themselves without any, um, you know, talk therapy or anything like that. And I'm not saying that that is the case for anybody else. This is just my personal experience. But fast forward into our work with the Warrior Angels Foundation, where we wanted to bring the same level of care to others, um, active duty service members and veterans who were suffering the symptoms of head injuries and post-traumatic stress. And what our work has shown is that oftentimes when people are struggling with uh, the problems of post-traumatic stress, even though they say they've never had any physical real, physical injury, when we treat it as a physical injury, mm -hmm. their, their symptoms of post-traumatic stress get turned down. So there is a correlation there by saying, hey, man, there is a, a role of inflammation. There's also a role of our, our unique uh, biochemical individuality, our, our, our brain chemistry. If that is deficient or insufficient, that can wreak havoc downstream and cause and manifest as all these different things. So, you know, those, those are some, some interesting things that we found there. So my, the encouraging thing here is for everybody is that if you seem to be, well, one, you're not your symptoms. You know what I mean? You're not your disorder. That's something that you're experiencing. Mm -hmm. All right. So, and I, we get really easy to, to really get honed in on that and claim that as a new identity, my anxiety, yeah. my depression, my post-traumatic stress. Well, reclaim it as this is what I am experiencing. Mm -hmm. But the good thing is, is, hey, you could be suffering from massive chronic inflammation, you could mm -hmm. be suffering from being deficient and things like this. And that could all stem from nutrition. So that's kind of the exciting, exciting hope there. And, and uh, uh, we'll have to come back to the question, David, but I wanted to give that uh, context and that pretext to the audience, because I think Mike, this is this is like the 
the, the incredible contributions that we're able to make because this was not and still is not well understood. And a lot of these things are actually under our control if we are experiencing these symptoms that we don't want in our life. And this gives us actually the dominion, the, the, the ability to act as a sovereign individual over our life, to have agency over our life and say, you know what? I know I'm experiencing this, but there's things I can do about it. And maybe that's a behavioral change. Maybe that's a psychological change, but that, but that's going back into it. And, uh, and that being said, I, I remember what I wanted to come back to your, to your question about, okay, uh, parenting. All right. So um, here's what we know. Children are a sponge. They're a sponge, especially years, you know, from conception to seven years. They're not with their brainwave states. They're actually in a theta and a delta what brainwave state, which is uh, akin to being asleep, uh, REM sleep or deep sleep. So like they're not even what that means is they're not even ha have conscious control over their brain yet. So they're just taking information in without a filter, just coming in into the subconscious and that gets hardwired into their central nervous system that gets hardwired into the operating system. So irrespective of if a father has symptoms of post-traumatic stress, whatever behavior is exhibited around that child, that mm -hmm. child through no fault of their own will have that taken in. That is now, once you understand that, that is eye opening, eye popping information. When I learned that, I said, Dear God, yeah, everything we do, everything we think, you know, not just talk, or mm -hmm. most of it's nonverbal, gets downloaded right into the operating system of the child. So that, that, then at that point, you can make a decision, man. All right, man. is my life going to be a force for good around my children? Am I going to go the extra mile, even though I have to work really hard at it? And uh, I'm a human. I fail every day. But it's this awareness says, okay, man, well, I just come back and how can I do it better next time? And I think that's the beautiful part about life. So that, that to your, to the question of, you know, what are my thoughts on it and how can that play out? Well, imagine mm -hmm. if you were plagued by that and you were just creating this absolutely toxic environment, it only makes sense that that child, when they walk around you are walking on eggshells or they're afraid because they're going to get verbally berated or they're even worse, physically assaulted, you know, who knows what. So of course that would get passed on and back to the suicide with the guys. The reason that I really contemplated taking my own life had nothing to do with how I was personally dealing with it. It came to do with understanding the absolute devastating environment that I was creating inside my house and thinking, hey, the only best solution here is to remove myself permanently because then maybe they will have a chance. And that I think with, with men specifically is happening so much today. It's not that they're a coward in, in their, in their uh, reduced psychological state. They yeah. thought, and it's out of love, as crazy as that sounds, mm -hmm. I, have to re I have to remove myself from the situation. So, mm -hmm. you know, that is the difficulty with when, when somebody is not awake to this mm -hmm. and they, they become, they, you can, you know, you're gonna be a victim or you can be a victor. You can become a victim to this and the next generations will default also, you'll set them up for, for failure. That's, that's my two cents on it, David. Mm, man, man, you really touched so many bases with that. That was awesome, brother. I read, I'm going to read you something real quick, Andy. Okay, it says that PTSD affects 8 million adults each year. 
and about 4% of men throughout their lifetimes. Okay, this is according to the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. While it is yeah. unclear how many fathers struggle with PTSD, about half of all American men today are fathers. So it isn't far-fetched to assume that roughly 4 million dads may be dealing with issues you have gone through. Do you believe without significant interventions, these fathers are going to pass down that suffering to millions of kids if they don't find like how you did to go out there and be an advocate for themselves? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, again, when you understand how the brain operates and mm -hmm. if they're if they're whatever their behavior is is going to get downloaded downloaded into that child's operating system so without some intervention without actually acting under an understanding of hey man like uh, we, i know i've heard it all my life but everything i do matters mm. not just to me but to everyone i interact with and multiply or magnify that out to the largest degree and that might be close to talking about where it goes with your children so again, man, like if the individual is not is not educated on that, or they don't go through their own spiritual path where they come to that conclusion through you know revelation or, or whatever it might be, then then yes, it's it's difficult. And and I think that hey, there's dads out there thinking like, well, shit, man, like <laughs> I've set my kids up for success. Well, you know what? It can change. It can be rerouted all by you, you know what I mean? And you can replace what's been there with positive, more productive ways of being. So it's not beating ourselves up about what we didn't know. If we, if you knew that was the case and you still continue to do it, well, that, you know, that, that there's special places in hell for people like that. But if you didn't know, if you didn't know, then you didn't know. And you know mm -hmm. now, and you're changing your behavior, then that's all that you could ask of yourself. So I, I would tell the dads out there, man, let's not beat ourselves up for things that we didn't know. Let's take in new information. Let's figure out how we can make some changes and let's get back on track. And let's start thinking about where do we want to be? What father, what kind of father do I want to be? And then how would I need to change where I'm at today to meet that tomorrow uh, best version of myself? Mm. Yeah, it all falls back to that awareness and, and really just doing a self-assessment and what you want, you know, putting your goals and basically just finding your purpose. You know, like you said, you found your purpose again with, with your children and being a better father and being a better husband. And I think that's where a lot of father fails is they forget what their purpose is. You know what I mean? Especially when they identify with a job or career or stuff like that. With that being said, Andy, I, uh, Full, going back to this article that I was reading about, okay, yeah. it talked about that uh, parenting, we all know it's stressful, okay? And it was going on to state that because of parenting, that these fathers who are experiencing PTSD, the effects, the stress that parenting brings upon them seem to really be magnified with fathers at PTSD. Do you think that's, uh, is that something you experienced or anything like that? Yeah, I yeah, I believe so. Um, uh -huh. So let's unpack that. Um, so they're they're experiencing the their symptoms, and then the symptoms of parenthood combined kind of contributes to like this bigger explosion, so to speak, um, uh, mm -hmm. emanating on the children. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. Hey, man. <laughs> parenting is stressful. It's like, yeah. it's kind of like combat. Like you don't know, you, you have a general idea of what you think that might be, but, but until you step into those shoes into that, until that, that domain, like 
you don't, you don't really know what's going on. Parenting is no different, except the stress from parenting, man, 24-7, 365. Yeah. So, you know, just, just attempting to navigate uh, being a parent in today's uh, day and age, uh, you know, where we're making our kids walk around in masks everywhere uh, and they can't even see people's face anymore. Uh, like, yeah, that's a stressful environment, not even to throw into the equation, hey, man, like I'm suffering and I'm bringing in all these things here. So I do think that that is um, two compounding fact, uh, factors there that can make that situation a whole lot. Yeah. Um, I was reading Andy about this one Marine. Okay. And I was talking to him and stuff like that. And he was talking about because of his post-traumatic stress disorder, right? He was having issues being in public and which led to him feeling very depressed because he would have to leave his daughter in the zoo. And I, I just, I, I, you know, my heart went out for the, the guy, you know, because here he is trying to be an engaged, committed, responsible father. And then he's having these issues that he can't deal with for lack of better words, you know, and he's leaving his daughter. And then I put myself in the, in, in the child's shoes. And it's like, well, what does that convey? What kind of message does that convey to our children? You know, she's probably thinking in her head, man, why did my daddy leave me? Why did he abandon me? Does he not love me? Does he not? Am I, is there something wrong with me? You know, uh, mm -hmm. what do you think about that? Yeah, it's devastating. It's devastating for the child. Um, mm -hmm. It's devastating for the parent. I mean, the child and the child and their limited capacity to understand, uh, you know, the complexity of the situation just goes to the lowest level. Like dad, for some reason, uh, he can't be around me. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, therefore, there must be something inherent in me that causes the person that one of the people that I love the most to not be able to be around me. So that just drops that, you know, child's uh ability to to be you know uh confident and have good self-esteem mm -hmm. and ha with doesn't have a clear understanding of the big picture and again the, you know the, the father's probably you know i say we give them the benefit of the doubt they're doing the best they can in a very difficult circumstance and it's funny because where i'm at now like um we've had second or third generation uh of, of wars and I'll have parents uh, of my age or even older up into the 50s say, hey man, my father from World War II or the Korean War or the um, Vietnam War or even the first Gulf War, children of these um, fathers who engage in those, uh, in those combat uh, theaters would come back and say, I never understood until you guys framed traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic stress, what my dad was dealing with. And now it I, I have a complete new understanding and it rewrites their history. Mm -hmm. As strange as that may sound, because they go back and now they understand what the father was dealing with through no fault of their own. And they didn't want to be this way. And it doesn't uh, you know, necessarily like uh, just fix the past, but it does rewrite it in the sense that the individual now understands like, oh my God, man, they were dealing, they were there. There was no medical care. This wasn't even talked about, but we've mm -hmm. seen it since the dawn of war and this is here. And these are the reasons they were having this problem. So, you know, that, that's one of the cool things is that if it, get, it allows 
children who are now adults uh, put that difficult circumstance or situation or their childhood with a fair, a pair of fresh eyes, a new perspective. And that new perspective says, okay, man, like, cause they're, you know, as an adult now they're dealing yeah. with diff the difficulties of life and they can think about it from an adult's perspective, mm -hmm. from a parent's perspective, but going back to the child, mm -hmm. that's the detrimental part of it. The heart, like you said, man, like it breaks my heart too, because they can't comprehend that. They just want to be with their father and God, it just, it just tears me up. And it is, irrespective if they have a new perspective later on in life, it causes so much heartache in the family. And that ripples out negatively through the entire community. Absolutely, bro. And it's safe to even say that, you know what I mean? If, if it's scary for the father, because, you know, if they don't know what's really going on, I mean, it's definitely scary for the children. You know what I mean? Yeah. The children don't understand what's happening, why it's happening. You know what I mean? And some of the worries they may have is, you know, is their parent okay yeah. Are they going to be able to take care of themselves? Or are they going to be able to take care of me? With that being said, Andy, what are some of the steps you have taken to educate your children about what is happening to you or what has happened to you? You know, just attempting to talk to them and say, hey, daddy had an injury or there was a, a problem with my brain because of my service mm -hmm. and that caused problems down the way. Uh that we experienced as one, two, three. Mm -hmm. But now, because we wanted to get better, to create a better environment to, to improve our family, you know, we, we went and found Dr. Gordon. We went and now we help other people with that. So we turned it around into like, you know, making it very, hey, here's a cause which produced this effect. Mm -hmm. But there was this internal fire that we all have inside of us that said, hey, we're gonna fight and we're not going to accept this. And we're also able to turn that into a situation where we can go and help other people and other family members with it. So now like my, my kids, like, you know, they're so proud of the Warrior Angels Foundation and, and taking care of, of uh, the brain and things like that. Like, so like they wear it as a, as a badge of uh, a shield of honor mm -hmm. um, type of thing, but we had to go back and we had to reframe it. You know what I mean? And the ones yeah. that we had after, well, they don't know any difference. They just know the the second uh, secondhand story of it. And, and that's it. You got to go back and you got to identify, you know, what do we want out of this? How do we frame it? How do we reframe it into mm -hmm. and spin it into the positive direction that we want it to go? And then you have to you have to walk the talk, man. And um, that's easier said than done. But if you're committed to it, you just stay on that path. And, mm -hmm. and that that's that's David, the way that, you know, I made my best attempt to bring it back to them. Does it, mm -hmm. does it erase anything? Does it erase it from those memories? You know, I, no, I don't, I don't think so, but they can see as they are retrospective later on in life, a honest, like, and fair commitment on the path of the father to do their best to write things. And, and that's where I, that was my intent, man. That was mm -hmm. my hope of where it would go. It's good to see how you changed it. I mean, you, you learned about team, you know, team building, all that stuff from, from being in, in sports, correct? And then later yeah. on, that was magnified with your team, your element on, you know, being a green beanie, right? So yep. with that being said, you transitioned what you learned to your family. You took them, you utilized your family instead of spearheading it off by yourself. And, and like a lot of fathers who are struggling with this, you know, keeping their spouse in the dark about it or whatever, you know what I mean? Not really wanting to delve into it because of fear or whatever, you know what I mean? You took your family, you 
engaged all of them. You said, we're going to take this together. We're going to, we're going to hit this on as a family. We're going to overcome it as a family, as one cohesive unit. And I think that's awesome. And that kind of leads into the next question I was going to ask you, what are the biggest mistakes fathers make that are hard to recover from? And an example would be like keeping their spouse in the dark about struggles and depression. You know what I mean? So, you know, I, I kind of like the way you, you frame that all, you know what I mean? And what you did, you know? Yeah. We, we say the last part of the question, David, we talked about um, something with depression because it cut out for a second. I want to make sure I understand the, the, the whole context of the question so I can give my best answer. Okay. So what are the biggest mistakes fathers make that are hard to recover from keeping spouse in the dark about yeah. struggles and depression and stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll just give my experience. I, I don't know, like, you know, if this will be the key thing that, that, that mm -hmm. they struggle to come back from, but I, I, I'll put it as like what I think is, is most important. <clears throat> and that is that the family unit remains cohesive. And so that means it needs to start with the husband and the wife. And as difficult as it is, you know, in a family life um, to show affection, to show respect for the mom, the wife, to do your best in the own way for the family to put that put that woman up on the pedestal and to let your children know that she's to be respected. I think first and foremost, that is of the utmost importance. And it's one thing to talk it, but it needs to be more visible. The children need to see that. They need to see that physical in interaction. They need to see the love. They need to see the respect between you know, uh, those two. I think that's for, first and foremost of the utmost importance because that's going to put into the, to the child you know, by their direct experience with it a, a healthy representation of what a family needs to be like. Mm -hmm. What I think is other things that are difficult to come back to come back from is if you know you're treating your wife in a way that you wouldn't want your children to treat their spouse in the future. That's mm -hmm. that that would be so number one. And then number two, it's just understanding, hey, again, there whether whether I think they see it or understand it or not, they're they're taking in that information. Mm -hmm. So how, how do we set up the way we live life? You know what I mean? Like for, for my family, like we have um, a family mission statement. We have, hey, uh, you know, our own version of like the, the 10 commandments, um, seven things that you don't do and mm -hmm. everything else is, you know, open for discussion, but, but we don't do this. This family doesn't do this. And that allows us to hone in and I can really, those are good teaching moments for me to take it at the child's lowest level where they're, they're, you know, my twins don't understand they're two and a half, but my six and seven year old boys do, they, they do. And, and, and above that, they certainly do. And, and also they get to see, Hey, does, does dad, is that just talk or is, does he live his life that way? My hope is, is that when my children become older, they'll come back to these things that we said, Hey, this is how we're going to navigate and they'll see, hey, not only did dad talk it, he lived it. And he must have been really important to him to, to be this way for a reason. Let me reflect on that. You know, hopefully it's already, you know, become in the essence of who they are. But that's what I really hope that they'll find later on in life. So anything that would cause to be in the way a, a block or a barrier for me personally mm -hmm. to live that life, to provide that for my children, would be something very difficult to come back from. So I think that I think that's it. Advocating for one type of behavior and then 
you know, doing yourself something different than what you're advocating for. And we see this with our uh, politicians all the time. <laughs> do yeah. as I say, not as I do. Well, I think that's the same thing for us parents, man. That's going to be a hard one to come back on. So maybe that's something that we, you know, I can think of. I just thought about that right we're talking, David. And I think that's important, man. Like, do what you say you're going to do and mm -hmm. let them, you know, uh, let, let them be a part of that. that. That will help, you know, for that to cement and, and, and magnify across time. So I, I think, yeah, if, we, if we're telling them to do one thing and we're acting personally a different way that's contrary to that, that yeah. is uh, potentially disastrous. Absolutely. Just sends a mixed message and then they're going to grow up later on being like, okay, I'm confused. You know what I mean? But um, yeah. Are they going to run for office? Oh, right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, I want to jump into some questions I got from the audience real quick, brother. And yeah. Yeah. The first one I got is, do you think social media has a hand in making it difficult for men to seek help and express their struggles for fear of judgment? I think it certainly could. Um, it, it just depends on where the individual is coming from. Like if, if they're af afraid to put that out there for help mm -hmm. because they're honestly looking for help and they're not sure where to go, and, and that's a great form to put that out there, but potentially, you know, you could get trolls, you could get people that now think you're weak or who don't, uh, you know, we're all living busy lives. So they're going to pass judgment without really going and investigating the underlying story. So mm -hmm. I would just go back to the individual. If, if you think that that's the best or a good medium for you to say, Hey, I'm struggling. And can anybody, you know, provide some resources or I just need some help and that's your true authentic reason for putting that out there, then I do think potentially that that could be a source used for good. Yeah. That being said, um, you know, there, you got to be there's a lot of bad actors out there. So it could also be used for for negative reasons. So it just kind of goes back to their intent. And you got to understand uh, as the individual, hey, I'm going to get some good, I'm going to get some bad. Uh, I made the call that it was worth putting it out there. Mm -hmm. And go and investigate what you think is good. Um, so you know, I, I think that could be a worthy vehicle uh, if done in the right way, understanding that, you know, hey, do I care what people think about me or not? Because yeah. who, who cares at the end of the day? But if that's a driving factor, that would certainly keep somebody from reaching out for help. If you were just worried about somebody's limited perspective of you having, you know, a different uh, judgment. Mm, yeah, I like that. Thank you. Um, the second one that came in was, how has your mission encountered resistance or judgment from the use of non-conventional treatments, uh, the taboo nature associated with hormones? Yeah, uh, with fierce, fierce resistance um, from from you know uh, you know the medical high priests. Um, we saw this with uh, Dr. Gordon and I, uh, this is the uh, medical director for the Warrior Angels Foundation, and he runs the Millennium Health uh, Neuroregeneration Centers, brilliant neuropsychologist, one of my most favorite people on earth. But we were in the United Kingdom uh, at the request of the Surgeon General of their armed forces, and we were at this invitation-only um, brain injury symposium where we're looking at these alternative treatment modalities, one of being the neuroendocrine uh, approach that Dr. Gordon takes. Mm -hmm. And we're at the table with all of the decision makers over the entire NHS, that's national healthcare system for the United Kingdom in the vitriol and the uh, closed mindedness 
that I saw come from these individuals after uh, Dr. Gordon Mark gave his presentation, which was just backed by like a mountain of evidence that he brought, you know, for everybody to read. Mm -hmm. They just refused to take anything uh, contrary to the belief system that they were proposing um, that, that it just became, you know, a moot point. So that, that's been the resistance, um, which will lead you down a whole different rabbit hole and, and another red pill there when you kind of understand the reasons why those things happen. But just ask, hey, has there been massive resistance from, from the machine? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine, you know what I mean? Especially with all these, you know, different approaches you're taking and, you know, like you called it the machine, you know, these... Uh, these pharmaceutical companies, big farm, you know what I mean? Pfizer and all them, they definitely don't want your guys' messages going at that because then it affects their business. It affects their pocket, you know what I mean? And at the end of the day, it's all about the mighty money, you know what I mean? The mighty dollar. Um, With that being said, the last question we have coming in was, we have a saying in the line trade, be where your feet are. Your military career has the demands of deployments. How is your current mission distractions allowing for effective parenting? I take the 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 role now that I, I don't separate or segregate us. I integrate, you know what I mean? Yeah. So like my family, they understand and they're a part of uh, of the mission now. They've taken it on as something that that we do now as a family. And and so it's it's not like everybody knew I was doing a podcast today and, and they and they knew why. You know what I mean? So it's, that's how I, I brought them into the equation. Mm. And it's now something that, you know, even though they're not on the, doing all the things that I do, they're up to speed and they know the importance of it and they're excited about it. So that's the best way that I brought it in, man, is to, is to integrate it because I have a full-time job. I have a big family. I run the foundation. I have, we have an incredible team that, that I actively manage. And that means the majority of my weekend and uh, several hours each day during the week is dedicated to that. But it's because we're able to balance all these things in proportion and have the complete backing of my family because we all believe in what we're doing. It's been, uh, I think, a more productive way for us, at least, to go to go about, you know, with this demanding schedule. Mm, I like that, especially because, you know, um, there's a saying in the Bible that says, how could two walk together unless they be agreed? And, you know, definitely when you have your house all in order, they're all on the same page with you. You know what I mean? It's definitely going to be a lot easier, especially knowing, like you said, you know, you told your children today, you have a podcast going on. So they respected that. They know that daddy's going to need some quiet time and stuff like that. And, you know, that, that's really awesome that you did that. You know, um, if you don't mind, Andy, I'd love for you to tell our listeners, what's a challenge yeah. you faced? Well, uh, David, I, I would, I would. Uh-huh. Go ahead, brother. What was that? Uh, I, I just wanted to jump. I just want to jump in. I gotta, I gotta throw, I gotta throw this out there because I just would be, um, uh, I don't know what the right word is, uh, lying to myself if I didn't are, are really coming up short. Hey, the, the reason the whole, this whole thing goes, at least at the Mar house is because of my wife. Yes. Uh, I have an incredible wife. And, you know, when I tried to, to say, Hey, we, we, we need to go our separate ways. She wasn't having it. She wasn't having it and she does everything. She just supports me 100%. I don't know how I got so fortunate. Uh, I'm not deserving of it, but I have a wife who I, I know, we know now like we're, whatever the situation, we're, we're gonna ride together, we're gonna die together. That's just the way it goes. We worked hard to get here, but 
she just is so supportive. So, uh, you know, like that, that, that is like the biggest component of making all this work. Like my wife is so supportive. She's behind it 100%. Uh, if I didn't have that level of support, I, I'm, I'm confident we wouldn't be having this conversation today. Um, so I, I, sorry, I, I apologize for, for busting in, man, but I, I had to uh, push that out there because, you know, men all out there that, that are, can relate know as, mm -hmm. as do you and I, like you got to have that woman uh, behind you. With, you got to be have a unified front. Uh, anything like you were talking about there with the biblical uh, quote, it's got to be a unified front and, and, and that's where magic can happen. Absolutely, bro. And no, no, I'm glad you threw that in there because, you know, they say behind every successful man is a woman. Well, I like to take that a step further and say, well, she's not behind you. She's right next to you. You know what I mean? So that's awesome that you, you kicked in on that. Annie, can you tell our listeners what's a challenge you're facing or, you know, that you faced or still facing that turned out to be a catalyst for growth as a man? Uh, that's a great question. I think we'll just go back to uh, us as men in our sense of identity being mm -hmm. tied around is by what we do professionally, or maybe even our self worth uh, coming from what we uh, do, you know, as a profession professionally. Mm -hmm. And that was, uh, it, it, it took me losing that and, and losing my health, losing a paycheck. Uh, not understanding, like not one, like, how am I going to just how I can't think straight. I can't walk straight. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't earn a paycheck. I don't have a paycheck. How am I going to take care of this family? Um, and I, I had to go inward to understand. I'm not those things. Those are things that I did. Mm -hmm. And the underlying mechanism behind that really had to do with purpose. And then I realized, okay, well, what was the purpose behind being an athlete? What was really the purpose about what, what lined me up uh, and fired me up of being about special forces? And it was serving a mission that was greater than myself in a place where I could contribute and perform to the best of my abilities. And that's when I realized that's the driving factor in my life. And that opened up this whole new level of growth. Mm -hmm that's hard to comprehend because then I started to look for, okay, well, how do I live this life of purpose now where I can contribute into and can live my purpose out of these crucibles come these opportunities for new trajectories, new growths, mm -hmm. graduating to new ways of being and if you look throughout history, man, it's we have case after case after case after case. We always think and get caught up in our individual scenarios. But the, odd, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that, hey, man, has somebody else endured the things that I've endured or, uh, or I'm enduring? And have they been able to overcome that? The answer is always yes. And the, if that answer is yes for somebody else, then the answer is yes for you. We just have to first change our mindset, change the way we think about it. We might have to make a ton of behavioral changes. We might need medical help, but there is a fire in you that if you quiet, be quiet and listen, it will tell you that you need to go a certain way and you need to fight. And um, I guess that would be the biggest message here I can bring to the listeners is that, hey, like I said, out of these tough times, if you're open to it, it can produce a whole new way, a whole new life that you never even know, knew was out there, but it's yours for the making.
Mm, that is so awesome, Andy. Thank you, brother. I just want to wrap things up today with you, just being able to share with our audience how they can get a hold of you if they have any questions, uh, you know, your foundation and stuff like that, if you don't mind. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, everything One Stop Shop is our website. That's waftbi.org. All our social media, all our contact, any information you want on the foundation, any information you want on brain health, the science of head injuries, the science of post-traumatic stress, some of the products that our foundation is clinically validated. All that stuff is on our website. So you can, you can get uh, always reach me through there. Well, thank you, Andy. I appreciate your time, brother. I know you got to get back to that beautiful family of yours. And I just want to thank you for the opportunity to just be able to interview you, bro, and just share your story to our listeners. You know, I know they're going to get a tremendous amount of value from it, brother. So I thank you and I commend uh, you. Yeah. I, it was an absolute honor to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Awesome. Thank you, Andy. Have a good one.